Roundhouse Kicks. We talk about sneakers, a sneaker culture, and the people who create and consume it. Today we are starting a new series called City Stories, where we spotlight sneaker-centric cities around the world that have contributed to sneaker history and culture in meaningful and impactful ways. This week we'll be spending time in the Big Apple, arguably ground zero for sneaker culture. Now, Different sneakers mean different things to different cities. For example, Air Max 95s are called 110s in London because they, when they initially dropped, they cost 110 pounds. Air Max 1s are beloved in Tokyo. Adidas NMDs are still huge in Australia. And in New York City, where sneaker culture was born and is arguably its hotbed, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single city corner without a pair of uptowns on at least one set of feet. Uptowns, or Air Force Ones as they're known outside of the Big Apple, so-called because the birthplace of their popularity was in Harlem, which is in Uptown, New York, are the first and last word in sneaker culture on the streets of the city that never sleeps. Originally designed as a high-top basketball shoe by Bruce Kilgore in 1982, the Air Force One, or Uptowns, or AF1s, or Forces, or just simply Ones, became a major fashion statement in the 90s and beyond and are today one of the most well-known, well-sold, and most popular footwear pieces on earth, particularly in their all-white color configuration. But in the same way that the fashion-savvy citizens of New York reimagined a waterproof construction boot into a cultural icon with the Timberland 6-inch premium wheats, now more widely known simply as Tim's. They took the chunky-soled first iteration of the Air Force, and I say first because there have actually been six versions of the Nike Air Force over the years, and made it about everything except what it was originally designed for, basketball. For the most part, anyway. Rasheed Wallace, who played over 1,100 games in the NBA and averaged 14 points, six rebounds, and almost two assists over his career, was famous for eschewing all of the basketball shoe innovations that his peers took part in and chose instead to wear Air Force Ones, a stubborn declaration that benefited Nike in a huge way that said that what was good enough for professional basketball in 1982 was good enough for it in the new millennium. But part of the reason Wallace's AF1 dedication was so endearing was precisely because the shoe had long since been left behind on the court and found its way onto the streets. The all-white version of the Force became go-to attire for New York City gang members and drug dealers who wanted to look fresh while dealing out death on the sidewalks and in the alleyways of the world's most famous city. Jay-Z, who famously began life as one of those dealers and has been rapping about it ever since, loved the all-white Air Forces so much that in 2004, he had a limited number of all-white Air Forces made with the Rockefeller logo stitched into the heel and the tongue, which he gave to friends and family of the label. For 13 years, until the shoe was released in much larger quantities to the public, the Rockefeller Air Force Ones were the Ark of the Covenant for sneaker collectors, hip-hop aficionados, and AF1 heads the world over. But by that time, the AF1 had already been adopted as hip-hop's own child in the world of footwear when Nelly, in 2002, released the hit song Air Force Ones, which quickly became the most popular and successful song about footwear since Run DMC proclaimed their love of shell toes in 1986 with the hit My Adidas. To date, there have been over 2,000 
thousand Air Force One colorways, collaborations, and or color material combinations, but the most popular AF-1 is still the all-white version. I would wager a guess that you could visit any major metropolitan city in the world and have a hard time going 15 minutes without spotting a pair, whether fresh and crispy or completely cooked, on someone's feet. The shoe is, regardless of age, gender, or race, one of the most ubiquitous pieces of footwear on earth. And it remains the most popular in the city that made it its own. But the Air Force One is not the only sneaker New Yorkers wear or have worn. The shoes have only been around since 82, and New York has been a sneakerhead hotbed since the early 70s, perhaps even longer than that. But there weren't options in the 70s the way there are now, with the aforementioned 2,000-plus different Air Force Ones to choose from. What first connected the city with sneakers was basketball. Basketball and sneakers go hand-in-hand, and still do. Air Jordans, particularly older models, may have had little to do with hooping in 2023, but they were invented as tech-forward basketball sneakers. Michael Jordan was wooed to Nike on the back of promises made to him by the company to create a brand around his image and his on-court play before he ever even stepped foot on an NBA basketball court. Forces were made for basketball. Converse Chuck Taylors, which are now owned by Nike and rival forces as some of the most consistently popular footwear choices around the globe, were made for basketball as well. Adidas's most popular sneakers may be tennis shoes like the Stan Smith and soccer shoes like the Gazelle and Samba, but they've been making basketball kicks since the early 70s with models like the Top 10, Adidas Jabbar, and the shell-toed superstar the shoes Run DMC were so fond of. They were also the first shoe company to make shoes with all-leather uppers, which gave their lineup a luxurious premium look canvas and mesh didn't provide. In New York in the 70s, before the NBA was the multi-billion dollar juggernaut it is today, before Knicks games looked like the Oscars 2.0 with all of the celebrities in attendance every night, the best and most popular New York basketball was played on the streets, and the best place it was played was Rucker Park. Built in 1956 in Harlem, Rucker became the ultimate proving ground for the city's best players and most intense competition. Basketball legends like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Dr. J, Wilt Chamberlain, Earl Monroe, Tiny Archibald, and later Stephon Marbury and Kenny Anderson, amongst many others, cut their basketball teeth in tournaments at Rucker to the delight of New Yorkers who would travel there from all over the city to witness basketball greatness on a daily basis. One thing these scores of fans began to notice was the shoes the players wore. It was in the 70s that sneaker options were born. Chucks had been around for years, as had Chuck ripoffs like PF Flyers, Spalding's SS shoes, and Proked 69ers, but for the most part, you could only find sneakers in black or white. The Chuck imitations got so bad that at one point, Converse had to put out an ad that said, There is only one All Star, only Converse makes it, only sporting goods dealers sell it. The ad also claimed that 8 out of 10 players in every major college and junior college tournament wore All Stars. And this is part of what drove Converse and other popular sneaker brands at the time, like Proked and Adidas, to begin offering more extensive color choices to match school colors, something Nike would popularize in 1985 with their Be True to Your School campaign, where they released seven of their Nike Dunk sneakers in seven different university colorways. 
But the more color choices these companies provided, the more eclectic the sneakers became on the court at Rucker Park, especially when some of the most popular players began getting exclusive colorways of these shoes from sporting goods stores around New York in exchange for the players shouting out the stores when kids would inevitably ask, yo, where'd you get those? This helped mark the beginning of both player PEs and player endorsements outside of the NBA. Once Adidas made all leather sneakers popular in 1970s, it wasn't long before every basketball sneaker from every sneaker brand was all leather, and ball kicks didn't change much for the rest of that decade. There were now lots of colors to choose from, but not a lot of technological advancement, and for a while, basketball sneakers all kind of looked the same. Hip-hop was born in a basement block party in August 1973 at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx, but it gained mainstream popularity with the releases of songs like Rapper's Delight by New Jersey's Sugar Hill Gang in 1980, The Message by the Bronx's Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five in 1982, and Africa Bombada's Planet Rock, also released in 1982, and also originating in the Bronx. As I mentioned earlier, Run DMC, who originated in Queens and made their mark on the genre with 1984's Sucker MCs, released My Adidas in 1986, paying tribute to the Adidas superstar with the tracksuits to match. The marriage of New York-based rap music and sneaker obsession only grew from there. In 1989, the Beastie Boys, initially little more than a Run DMC ripoff, released the song Shadrack with the lyrics, More Adidas Than a Plumber Got Pliers. In 1990, Boogie Down Productions released Breath Control 2 with the lyric, I wear Clarks and only Nike sneakers. In 91, A Tribe Called Quest said that they sport New Balance sneakers to avoid a narrow path on Buggin' Out. In 94, Nas said that he's a Nike head on Halftime. In 95, on Fast Life, Cool G Rap said he'll put more shells from a gun in your top than Adidas, which isn't very nice. Clever, though. In 98, Big L said on Ebonics that the slang for sneakers is kicks, and in 1999, Raekwon released a song called Sneakers and proceeded to shout out everything from Adidas to Filas to Jordans to K-Swiss to Stan Smiths to Asics, Sauconies, Ponies, and even Spot Builds. That song wasn't as big as Nelly's AF1 tribute by any means, but for sneakerheads who appreciate deep-cut admiration for footwear, it was an encyclopedic classic of kicksology. All of these are examples of why it makes sense that the birthplace of sneaker culture would occur in the same city as the birthplace of hip-hop, and in the same city as the epicenter of street basketball. Ball, sneakers, and hip-hop all exist under the umbrella of street culture, and once you become addicted to one of them, it's that much easier to get addicted to the other two as well. You can't go to a basketball game without hearing hip-hop music playing, for example. You can't listen to a rap album without hearing the artists spit bars about sneakers, and you can't scour the internet for the next hot new sneaker releases without seeing collaborations with both world-famous basketball stars and hip-hop personalities. And by no means are these collaborations all located in the five boroughs. Travis Scott is from Houston, Kanye West is from Chicago, as was Virgil Abloh, Pharrell is from Virginia Beach, I mean Michael Jordan is from North Carolina, not Oregon, not New York, and not LA. So what makes New York the sneaker capital? I mean, there are a lot of people there, but there are a lot of people in L.A. and in Tokyo, in Shanghai, in Toronto, Mexico City. Now, I think beyond its relationship with hip-hop that New Yorkers have a culture that appreciates design. It has world-renowned museums like the Met, MoMA, 
and the Museum of Natural History. It has the Statue of Liberty and the world's most famous skyline, several iconic bridges, Wall Street and the Grand Central Terminal, and the Empire State and Chrysler Buildings. With such a rich history of design all around them, is it any wonder that New Yorkers appreciate such a flawless sneaker silhouette like the Air Force One? This affinity for footwear has contributed to the city's deep and endless rotation of top-notch spots from which to buy your sneakers. Sneaker consignment shops like Flight Club and Stadium Goods have gained prominence as sneaker reselling has become a multi-billion dollar business. And New York sneaker boutique institutions like Kith, Extra Butter, Concepts, and Atmos, which is a Tokyo expansion, as well as Supreme, which is technically a skateboard shop but has a rich history of sneaker collabs and exclusives, are still alive and well. While many other grail-worthy shops have closed, like Round 2, Clientele, Bobito's Footwork, and Nort Recon. And considering all of those spots were highly esteemed places to cop kicks, I guess it's true what they say. If you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. It's the unique shopping experience history of the city that is part of what's made it the sneaker capital all these years. Back before the advent of cell phones, sneaker news blogs, and the internet as a whole, if you want wanted to find a new pair of kicks or wanted to track down the ones you just saw on someone else's feet, you hopped on the subway and scoured every sporting goods store in the five boroughs that sold footwear until you found what you were looking for. If you found what you were looking for. And unless you were a well-known athlete, you didn't have a sneaker plug which means the best you could do for yourself was to make friends with the proprietors or employees of said sporting goods stores and beg them to keep you on the up and up to new releases and new colorways of your favorite kicks. The process lovingly known as the hunt has morphed from spending your Saturdays scouring the city for the new and the cool to scouring the internet for any store that ships worldwide and has one last pair of whatever it is in your size. In this day and age of technology enabling us to never leave the ass print in our couches for any reason if we don't want to, it's forced your local mom and pop sneaker spot to add shipping and handling to every sneaker they offer in store. The best you can hope for nowadays is that they hold off on releasing the sneakers online and giving locals a chance to cop first. But often it's the other way around and shops will say something along the lines of, The Air Jordan 4 White Cement will be available this Friday at 10 a.m. online. Any remaining pairs will be available in store when we open at 11. What? Why is it not the other way around? Why not open your store, let the locals slurp up the stock, and then put the remainder online later that day? People are split on how they used to shop for sneakers versus how they shop for them today. Some, usually the OG sneakerheads who have been doing it longer than a lot of the hype beasts have been alive, pine for the days when they would have to line up and camp out. In those days, any sneaker was available for purchase if you were willing to put the time in. Some sneakers required you to arrive at the store a couple of hours before it opened, some a couple of days. Supreme became known for their around-the-block lineups on release days, particularly when they had a new Nike collab coming out. That form of dedication came to an abrupt end in 2014 when the NYPD shut down a planned release of the Supreme Foam Posit 1 at Supreme Store in Soho when hundreds of eager sneakerheads crowded out the street in front of the store and began getting rowdy. 
That wasn't the first time Supreme had an unruly crowd on their hands for the release of a hyped sneaker collab, but it was the last. From that moment on, Supreme canceled all in-store sneaker releases and decided to move new releases exclusively online. But large crowds prepared to cause havoc as a result of a new sneaker release is nothing new in New York. Sneakers are such coveted items both for people who actually wear the shoes and for resellers who know that getting their hands on a pair of super limited kicks for 150 bucks could mean a return on investment worth hundreds if not thousands of dollars for a single pair. The most famous example of this, of course, was the planned release of the Pigeon Dunk a Nike SB sneaker collab with designer and street culture entrepreneur Jeff Staple, limited to 150 pairs to be sold exclusively in New York City. The pigeon caused hysteria outside of Staple's Reed Space store on the Lower East Side. The cops showed up and arrested a few knuckleheads, but let Staple sell the shoes to the lucky few who were able to score a pair and even helped escort the people who did away from the store with their prized new purchase which was worth 300 when they bought it and worth well over $1,000 the next day. Something tells me those shoes did not go straight to feet. And while Staple chose the pigeon as its mascot and its colors for their Nike collab, claiming that the arrogance and resilience of the bird typified New York and the people that live there, there have been plenty of New York-themed sneakers that have caused their own brand of havoc. In 2019, Nike teamed up with Scars Pizzeria, a famed local pie haunt in Manhattan, and blessed them with their own Scars Pizza Air Force One. Covered in details that pay tribute to this shop, the shoes are white with blue and orange swooshes, next colors, Scars Pizza branding on the tongue and heel, and they even have the shop's phone number etched into the leather. Nike only made 48 pairs, which shop owner Scar Pimentel then gifted to select friends and family. In 2021, a pair made its way to auction house Sotheby's and was sold for an insane $120,000, making it the most expensive Air Force One on earth. Also in 2019, Nike paid tribute to the city with an Air Force One called the What the NYC City of Athletes. The shoes are covered in different colors and materials that all pay tribute to New York sports history. In 2022, Virgil Abloh's Off-White Band paid tribute to the Brooklyn Museum with an all-green Air Force One called the Off-White Brooklyn. Kith has also done a couple of NYC Air Force Ones. And last year, Nike re-released the previously New York exclusive West Indies Air Forces, which before their re-release would sell for a couple thousand dollars a pop. The three West Indies models Nike released pay tribute to New York's West Indian Day Parade Carnival an annual celebration of West Indian culture in Brooklyn. And that's just Air Forces, and that's only the tip of the iceberg. Yes, other cities have their own exclusive sneakers. There are dozens of sneakers that pay tribute to Tokyo, for example. London has a bunch, LA. Even Toronto has some, but we'll talk about those cities later in a series. Sneakers have come a long way in New York. From those first years in the 70s when simply having more than one or two color options seemed revolutionary, to a pair of Scars Pizza Forces selling for over 100k, you can trace the story, attitude, and emphasis on culture and fashion of New York City by looking at the leather and rubber on the sidewalk getting folks from A to B. 
Babito Garcia, one of the most venerated NYC voices in streetball, hip-hop, and especially sneakers, claimed in his classic book, Where'd You Get Those?, that New York sneaker culture as he had known it was over by the end of 1987. Rare, one-of-a-kind sneakers that you had to hunt all all over the city for just so that you could ensure you were the only person you knew who would be wearing them, was replaced with mass-produced styles that anyone could buy from just about anywhere, which was then eventually replaced with limited edition hype that was only the click of a computer button away if you had the wallet for it. And with shoes that brands produced in the millions for affordable prices for whoever wanted one, shoes like the all-white Air Force One. A shoe without color, with outdated technology, and with a design that is 40 years old. Which is where New York City sneaker culture began in the 60s with the Converse Chuck Taylors. Huh. Imagine that. So there you have it. There's a little history of sneakers in New York City. Whether you consider New York City the capital of Sneakerville in 2023 or not, their long love affair with footwear can not be understated or overlooked. On our next city series, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be taking a look at Tokyo, Japan. A very, very different sneaker culture from New York City, but no less influential and certainly it takes most of its influence from the city we just finished talking about. Before that, though, next week, we're going to take a look at the best sneaker movie moments ever. Thanks for hanging out. Hope to see you then. Take care.